Bibles with me and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And this morning we will be finishing up a very short series that we've had on the church. And so we've actually taken a, a long hiatus from Galatians, which some of you may not even remember we were ever going through Galatians, but we were. And then we stopped and we, we did Christmas sermons and and then I was sick and different things. And then uh, after that, it was uh, the church. And so, so this is the last sermon on the church here this morning. And we will go, get back to, Lord willing, Galatians uh, starting next Sunday. We'll just pick up where we left off. But if you remember, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at how church membership is biblical. Now, some people wonder about that. Like, well, if I come to church and I sit here, my part of the church, but no, there's a covenant. The Bible teaches there's a known group who's accountable to each other before the Lord, and it can, you know, I mean, it can be done differently, formally, informally, but everybody knew who everybody was a part of the church in the New Testament churches, which accounts for how there could be a pastor. Like, who's the pastor a shepherd of? Well, he's got to have people who've agreed for him to shepherd them, Right? And, and who, who are we accountable to love the way the Bible teaches to, us to love one another in the church? Well, you got to know what the church is. And then discipline. What on earth? How do we do church discipline and obey what the Bible even says if we don't know who's in the church? And so church membership is required in order to do what the Bible says. And we saw that a couple of weeks ago. I commend it to you if you didn't get to hear it. It's an important one. Uh, but this morning, we're going to take up an, another subject, which is church discipline. And I'll just level with you. I don't like doing this. I mean, just telling you the truth. I do not enjoy preaching these kinds of themes. They're in the Bible. Um, I'd rather just be preaching Jesus only, pretty much, and trying to encourage and edify us in the Lord. But we have to do these things from time to time. And we've had, really, over the last couple of years maybe three years, lots of discipline cases, or at least to me it feels that way. And it's grievous, and it's burdensome, and it's heavy, and so we need to remember what the Word of God tells us about it. And so that's why we're doing this today. But to begin, I just wanted to, to, to set our minds on what is church discipline. The Bible teaches that there are three categories of church discipline. The first is initial church discipline, which is like membership, acceptance into the church. Second is formative church discipline, or the training that we all experience as members of the church under the word of God and with each other as we fellowship with each other and encourage, encourage each other. That's formative discipline. And then the third kind is corrective church discipline, which is where someone goes into their sins so far that they are denying Jesus because they won't stop or turn and they have lost their credible profession of faith. And so we don't discipline sinners that we'd all, there'd be no church, right? <laughs> right? We'd be gone, really. We are all sinners that need a savior. We only discipline those who deny Jesus because that's the line. Are we in him or out of him? Can we tell the truth about him? He's a savior of actual sinners. Or can't we? And that's the issue. So we'll look at these. First, I just wanted to, to read to you out of our Constitution. 
what it says about initial discipline. This is what we all agree to when we join. And whether you have agreed to it by raising your hand or not, if you're a member, you're under it. Me too. It's as much a check to me as to anybody, right? We're all under the Constitution because this is how we've agreed to live together and what we, we agree the Bible means together. But here's what our Constitution says about initial discipline. I'm just going to read it to you. It says, The New Testament illustrates and teaches that professing Christians are to be baptized. So who? Professing Christians only are to be baptized and committed to a local church for worship, ministry, edification, discipline, and evangelism. While we recognize that the true spiritual condition of an individual is infallibly known only to God. So do you know for sure even I'm a believer? You don't. You trust that. And I'm doing that of you because of your credible profession. You see? So it's infallibly known only to God. But we also recognize that the New Testament places upon the local church the responsibility of carefully guarding the admission and exclusion of its members. That's it. We guard the admission, initial discipline. Therefore, the membership reserves the exclusive right to determine who shall be members of this church and the conditions of such membership. We believe that the New Testament teaches that a church is a congregation of persons who by a good profession of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ give evidence of having been regenerated, which means born again, by the power of the Holy Spirit and who have been scripturally baptized as believers by immersion and obedience to the command of Jesus Christ. Any person who professes repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ, who has been baptized by immersion as a believer and who expresses substantial agreement with the doctrines, aims, and government of this church shall be eligible for membership. So all that is what we already believe. It was written that way before I got here. That's what we, we agree with. So that's initial discipline. Then there's formative discipline. That's how we are formed in Christ together as the church. Lord's day to Lord's day and the days between. Formative discipline. Here's what our constitution says about that. It says formative discipline is primarily positive. So it doesn't, we're not formed by, I've said before, it bears repeating because the Bible teaches it. We don't criticize each other into holiness. That guy is such a this way or that way. Get it right. What's wrong with you? Let's correct each other constantly so we can all be holy. No, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It'll destroy a church. Instead, formative discipline happens through the positive encouragement of Christ and the word. Edification, love. It's what our Constitution says, through the teaching of God's word, the example of Christian living, and the mutual ministry of the several members of the body of Christ. It has as its objective the instruction of disciples, the transformation of their lives, and their edification in love. Formative discipline has a sanctifying influence. 
Every member should be satisfied with his or her God-given ministry. That is where God has put you to serve. Whatever it is, everyone has somewhere, somebody in their life to serve. And thus, we shall all grow in, in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Formative discipline utilizes the talents of each church member, whether old or young, for the edification of all. Each who has been redeemed by Christ should live for him and his church and not for him or herself. I think that's very well said. It goes on in formative discipline. It says, as members of the church, we recognize our obligation to honor, serve, worship, praise, and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says, in all we say or do, Jesus Christ is the head of the church and therefore its Lord and lawgiver. And those who truly love him endeavor to keep his commandments. John 14, 15. I'm not citing all the scriptural passages here, but they're all through. It's just laced with Bible citations. In his holy word, our Lord has entreated believers to perform certain duties toward one another. Some of these duties are, and it lists all the duties that we're committed to with one another, which are, one, to love one another without offense or hypocrisy. Two, to labor to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. That includes that church member over there who I don't like, maybe. Which, you know, even in families, we don't like each other sometimes. But we have to love each other and learn to like each other, learn what's good in the graces of God toward one another, humble ourselves, repent of our sins, draw near to one another. If it's true in a family, it's certainly true in the family of God, Right? And so this doesn't come just naturally. It's not like we're joining a group of people we just love to be with all the time. This is a church, right? We need to learn to love each other and humble ourselves and sacrifice to serve. To labor to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, which is a work. It's it's hard work. By the way, I think this church works hard at it. I want to commend you and thank God for you. I do think you work hard at it. Thanks be to God. To endeavor for the edification and the spiritual benefit of the whole body, that they may all grow up to be a holy temple in and for the Lord. To look out for the best interest of others. To pray with and for one another. Not to neglect the assembling of themselves together for the celebrating of divine worship and so promote one another's benefit. To unanimously contend for the faith and truth once and for all delivered to the saints. We have to fight for the truth in this church. To defend it means we have to preach it, proclaim it, not give way to error. We have to rebuke heresy, false teaching. We have to stand against the lies of the evil one, which you have done well before I got here. And it's happened again and again, and I thank God that this church has contended earnestly for the faith. Brother Fred did that before me. Brother Bill did it before Brother Fred. And not just them, many other officers and members in the church suffered greatly to contend earnestly for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. And I thank God for the, the heritage and the testimony and the providences of God to this church. Then it says... In the case of doctrinal difference or unresolved disagreements in the church, it is the responsibility of the member to seek counsel and advice from the elders. 
before leaving the church in a disorderly manner. Such issues may be resolved because of misunderstandings and such disorderly leaving creates more misunderstandings. We have to try to work it out before we just leave each other. We're covenanted. It matters. So that's formative discipline. It's all in our Constitution. You want to read it yourself, I encourage you to do it and look up the Bible verses too because they're wonderfully good. But the third kind of discipline is corrective discipline. And here's what our Constitution says about corrective discipline. Corrective discipline results from disorderly conduct or heretical doctrine. So anyone who promotes a heresy can be disciplined in our church. Something that departs from the orthodox teaching of Jesus, what he taught in his word, which is contrary to the church's standard of life and doctrine. Reasonable efforts shall be made to resolve difficulties and remove offenses before any action is taken. No offenses shall be brought before the church until the instructions of scripture have first been followed. Matthew 5, Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, which we'll look at, and Galatians 6 as well. However, I wonder if you know this. However, some offenses are so publicly scandalous that they may require immediate expulsion. Now, we don't really have a history of doing that here. But it's in our Constitution. I think it's in the Word. Some uh, offenses are so publicly scandalous that we could exclude them immediately if there's evidence, proof of it, right? I don't think we've ever had one of those historically here, but we've never done it. That's why I wondered if you, you knew it was part of it. Corrective discipline is al- has always for its aims the glory of God, the welfare and purity of the church, and the restoration and spiritual growth of the offender. I want to thank again our church for so faithfully practicing what the Bible teaches about this subject. You've done this. There are few things in the life of the church that are more painful than corrective discipline. But you have followed our Lord Jesus through some difficult matters over the last years, sometimes through tears. I sat with some of you through tears. But you have walked faithfully. Thank you for honoring Jesus and doing the hard thing And as one of your pastors, I'm very grateful for your commitment to Christ when it comes to discipline, and I honor you for your faithfulness. The Lord Jesus honors you. This morning, we'll be looking at what the Bible teaches about corrective church discipline in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 13. So if you will, join with me as we read this from the Word of God together. God's holy word says... It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. So what's the sin? Probably here's the son of a father who who remarried. And it would say it was his mother if it was his mother. It wasn't that. It was his father's wife, which is some other woman in all likelihood than his mother, that he committed immorality with. 
And then it says, verse 2, and you are arrogant. Maybe they thought they believed in grace too much. Believe in grace. Judge not, lest you be judged. Grace, grace. Now, Paul says you're arrogant because they didn't discipline this person. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let the one who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled, that is, there is an assembly, a definite known number of members. When you, the church of Corinth, is gathered. In the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, which means it's the teaching of Paul. What's his spirit? It's the Holy Spirit through him. He taught. So when his, his, his apostolic teaching is with them. With the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Look how tolerant we are. Look how gracious we are. Look how patient we are. Look what a good church we are. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And then this. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or greedy or the swindlers or idolaters since then you'd need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Notice, inside, outside. There's membership. Discipline is for those inside, not outside. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray. Lord, these are difficult words to hear, to understand, and to apply. We pray you'd give us your grace, that your spirit would illumine our minds to your good word, and that you would keep us faithful to what you have taught us through Jesus. In his name, amen. Well, three things about church discipline. First, the process. We'll, look, we'll see something about the process here. Second, the authority. Where does the authority rest for church discipline? And third, the judgment of church discipline. So let's consider these three. First, the process. If you see 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1, it says it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Do you see it has to be reported? That's, that's significant that Paul 
And I, and I think we can make the case that by extension, any leaders in the church, they don't get involved with church discipline at all until it's reported. There has to be a charge made. And how was it reported to Paul? Well, he's the one who taught in this letter in another place, in the other letter, two or three witnesses. Paul didn't just hear one person from Corinth say, oh, they got this going on down in Corinth. He was in communication with people from that church, and he had two or three credible and corresponding witnesses that established this. Every fact who, who knew the same facts. And it was reported to him. Now there's an important implication here, and that is this, and I hope it encourages you, but pastors do not search for sins among the church. It is not my job to go looking for your sins. I thank God for that. I got my own sins to worry about. I'm not interested in looking for anybody else's. But if someone comes to me and makes a charge of sin, or Mitch, and, and says, this is a, a serious, unrepentant sin, we have to deal with it. Now, in context here, this is public sin, which we read about in our Constitution. Now, what is a public sin? Now, a private sin, we can understand this way. It's just an interpersonal offense. So one person says something to another that offends them, or you're disputing with your neighbor about where the fence should be, or some sort of interpersonal offense that does not concern public morality. That's the issue. It doesn't concern the whole community. It's an interpersonal offense. So what's a public sin? Well, Edward Hiscox wrote a manual of church order, which has been one of the classic statements of church order, at least in Baptist churches, since it was written. Here's how he defines public sin. A public offense is one claimed to be a breach of Christian morals or a violation of a covenant faith or duty. It is not an offensive act committed against just one individual of which that individual might complain. It is an injury to the cause of piety, a scandal to the Christian name and profession. That's a public sin. Not just one where a lot of people know, because if you murder someone in private and no one knows it but one other person, that's a public sin, you see? Because of what it is, the nature of the sin. Then it gives instances of public sins. So this is Hiscox. He says, if it be credibly reported that a member is addicted to intemperance or profanity or dishonesty, addicted to intemperance or profanity or dishonesty, or if he has departed from the faith or violated the order of the church in some grave matter, these are considered general or public offenses, since in no sense are they personal or private in their commission or bearing. And so when someone comes and files charges with the pastors for church discipline, which is also in our Constitution, charges have to be filed. When someone does that, there have to be two or three credible witnesses and every fact has to be confirmed by those two or three credible witnesses or two or three lines of evidence or other clear proof, right? So it has to be something other than just some, somebody's word. Now, if somebody comes without witnesses or proof, that doesn't mean we don't minister to them and try to help them figure out what's going on and maybe find proof, help them, encourage them to how to find it. We might do that. Say, hey, do you have other ways to support what you're saying? But there have to be 
more than just one testimony. And here, here are a few things about the process. First, the witnesses who file charges have to be willing to put their names and testimonies to the charges before the pastors can do anything about it. So if, if their witness comes forward and files charges, they have to say, I'm willing to put my name to this and it to go public. That's because discipline is not a matter of just the pastors, it's the whole church. And they have to be willing for their names to be put forward to the whole church. Pastors cannot uh, receive charges or begin discipline on hearsay or secondhand information. That's first. Second, the pastors meet with the witnesses and, if possible, the accused. And they hear all the testimonies together and they determine if they can come to the truth of the matter. Third, if the pastors determine the, the accused is guilty of sin, they hold out Christ as the one who forgives freely and has, who gives the power to repent. The goal in all pastoral ministry to sinning members is never just behavioral modification or fixing a practical problem. We don't just want people to stop doing bad things. Persistent public sin is actually not just bad behavior. It's a problem in the heart and a problem in understanding the grace of God in Jesus. We want Jesus for the sinning brother or sister. We want them to know, and this is their actual problem, to know and to believe the love that God has for them in Jesus. The grace of God in Christ to find rest for their souls. We have to confront us, uh, confront them in a spirit of love and gentleness. This is what Galatians 6.1 says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, You who are spiritual, that is, full of the graces, the fruit of the Spirit, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, which means not harshness or a critical spirit, but gentle. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, Help the weak, be patient with them all. 1 Peter 5, 2, 3 says, speaking to pastors, says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So pastors are overseers. Not domineering those in your charge over those in your charge. We're not to domineer over. We're not lords not to be lordly, not to rule down upon anyone. We're servants for Christ's sake. But it says, but being examples to the flock, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so pastors are to preach and minister and live out of Jesus lovingly and patiently, even to those who are hardened in their sin. Not with a caustic, censorious, condescending, arrogant spirit, but with a humble spirit, which pray for us, because we can be tempted. And so we need your prayers, please, in that regard, but that's what we're required to do. And the church is required to do it, too, because that's just what Christians are required to do, the way we're supposed to think of and treat each other. So first, we gather information. Second, we determine the truth of the matter. Third, we hold out Christ. 
But fourth, we call the sinning brother or sister to repentance, and we talk about what biblical repentance looks like. We give them time to think about what repentance means. We meet with them repeatedly, allowing time for the Word and the Holy Spirit to work on their conscience. But if they don't repent, depending on the nature of the sin, and this is so you can understand, we might censure them, which is call upon them not to take the Lord's Supper. This is part of what our text teaches in 1 Corinthians 5.8. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now the festival is a metaphor here, referring to the festival of church life as a whole, but it applies to the Lord's Supper. We're not to take the Lord's Supper with malice, envy, and sin. Fifth, if the person does not repent, we establish measures of accountability. And so using the Bible, uh, pastors will give counsel as to what repentance looks like going forward. And we set up accountability for the repentant member. And, and in some cases, actually many cases, the church doesn't even know that this has happened yet. And so if, if it's come first, you know, that it's just a personal offense and it comes eventually to the pastor's. And the person repents and wants to walk faithfully. The church doesn't know. It protects the sinning person and it protects the whole church. So that's the first main point, the process of discipline. But second, consider the authority of discipline. Who is the authority of discipline? Jesus. This is his word. This is his church. He is our king. This is not a democracy. It's also not an ecclesiocracy. So the pastors don't rule it. The church doesn't rule it. We are a monarchy. Jesus Christ rules his church. But under Christ, there's an order. And 1 Corinthians 5, verses 3 to 5 says this. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present... I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So notice just two things here. First, Paul tells the church what they should do. He's not, even as an apostle, Paul did not say, this man is removed from the church like a pope or something. He didn't do that. He said, you should remove him. So that's the first thing. It's the church's responsibility to do it. The the pastors, the leaders don't have authority to discipline anybody. But we do have the responsibility and the authority to make a determination, like Paul did, and lead the church. And then the church votes on whether or not they agree with their pastor. We'll follow him or not. Now, ordinarily, you should follow your pastors or replace them, right? Right? can't follow your pastor, get rid of him. But if you can follow him, follow him. Or, you know, change churches after trying to work it out, something. We have to, ordinarily we follow our pastors, and pastors should be open to correction as well. I don't see everything right, so you can come to me or Mitch and and tell us something you see that we missed, and hopefully we have the humility to, to change course, right? But ordinarily, you follow the pastors, and if, but if they're in sin or getting something wrong or they've misunderstood something, you have to vote against them. Their advice. You have to vote against what they're calling you to do. So that's a relationship between the pastors and the church. Let me read what our church's constitution says about the process of corrective discipline at this point. It says, 
we recognize termination of church membership as a disciplinary measure to be a most serious action. However, in order that the purity of the church may be maintained, any member guilty of a serious offense and remaining unrepentant despite repeated admonitions must be removed from the membership of the church. Yet our zeal for the glory of God must ever be tempered by a loving and prayerful concern for the restoration of the offender. Now here's the procedure that's in our constitution. The procedure to be followed for expulsion, that is removal from membership, depends upon the nature of the offense. The discovery of certain public sins may require immediate removal. However, the following procedure shall be followed in most cases. First, the suspected person shall be interviewed as directed in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 18, calling to repentance. Second, if this does not lead to repentance and the restoration of fellowship, a second meeting of two or three witnesses will be held, calling to repentance again. Third, if this does not lead to repentance and restoration, charges shall be filed with the eldership. After a fair and impartial hearing before the elders, of all the witnesses accessible and all the facts ascertainable, if the eldership unanimously believes the accused to be guilty and or unrepentant, the eldership shall make an appropriate recommendation to the congregation for a public rebuke and call to repentance at a regularly called congregational meeting. Fourth, if the member does not listen to the congregational rebuke, and repent, the congregation shall have the right to excommunicate a member by a two-thirds majority vote of the members present and voting. It is at the discretion of the elders to determine the length of time given for repentance between each of these steps. The aim of discipline is the glory of God, the purity, unity, influence, and witness of the church, and the redemption and restoration of the one disciplined. So the goal is Christ. The authority is Christ. The goal is Christ. And, and to protect the church and the edification of his true people. Well, I had a third point, but we'll just, I'll just say many people think, I'll summarize it very briefly. We have the Lord's Supper. They, they think of um, judge not lest you be judged. And they worry, how does that fit with discipline? Well, if you turn to that text, and you can if you want. It's in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. It does say, judge not, lest you be judged. But it can't be saying not to make any de determinations at all. And the reason is because verse 5 of the same text says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's. How are you going to see a speck if you don't see the speck? You see, that's a determination. But also in verse 6, do not give dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Doesn't that imply we have to know who a dog and a pig is? Now, we should be very careful before making that determination. I would hope never to have to apply that ever, actually. 
And I don't know infallibly who a dog and a pig is, but we've got to apply this somehow, which means if someone is doubling down in, going deep into their sins and won't turn back at some point, you don't keep giving them the gospel to try to get them back because they'll just trample it and turn and devour you. So in light of this, what does Matthew 7, 1 mean when it says, judge not lest you be judged? Well, it means we're not to have a fault-finding spirit. It means we're not to have a critical, accusatory, censorious spirit that is destructive. We're to, in love, make righteous determinations, which is what Jesus says in John 7, 24. Do not judge by appearances but judge with right judgment. It's a command. Did you know Jesus commands you to judge? Judge with right judgment, but not according to appearances. And what is right judgment? The truth. And it's not a critical, fault-finding, censorious spirit. It's done in humility and love and gentleness for the glory of Jesus and the good of the other. So this morning we come to take the Lord's Supper and... This supper is not for good people. In talking about discipline and sin, if we have tender consciences, we will feel our own sin. If we don't, we'll probably dismiss it. But if we have a tender conscience, we'll think, maybe I should be disciplined. But listen, the supper, which preaches Jesus and Jesus himself, isn't for good people. He didn't come to save the the righteous. He didn't come for the good. He came for sinners. And so if you are someone who is a sinner in need of a Savior, and you look to Jesus to save you through his blood and righteousness, then this supper is for you. If you're a baptized member of a, of a faithful church, then the supper is for you, and we welcome you to come. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your graces. Thank you for your word and thank you for your church. Lord, thank you for telling us the truth about discipline, how we can love each other even when it's difficult to do so. Thank you for this church and her faithfulness over the years to do what you say in these words. Keep us faithful, Lord, by grace. Help us to keep our eyes set upon you. In Jesus' holy and good name, amen.